Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. My name is Rijk van Kerk and uh, it is my weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. And my guest today is Alwijn van der Merwe. He is a veteran of more than 30 years in the asset management industry. He started his career as a fund manager in 1989 at Old Mutual. And he stayed at Old Mutual Asset Management for 18 years before moving to Sunlam Private Wealth in 2007 as the Director of Investments, a position he currently holds. Uh, Alvin, thank you so much for joining me. It has been a long career and it's not over yet. Do you still have a spring in your step when you wake up and get excited about market movements? Yes, Rick, I, you know, if I, if I can uh, use a, a winemaking analogy, you know, somebody said if you to quote uh, another legend in the wine industry when, uh, when he was questioned about why some of the winemakers are doing well and why I think we have the ability to stay in the market for 30 years. It's all about the genes. I think you either like the job and then it's it's entrenched in the way that you think and that drives you. And, and for us and for me in particular, there's never a dull moment. The environment changes consistently. And in the process, hopefully, we can add value to the life of people because we, in the final analysis, we look after the life savings of people and we would like to do it in a way that is responsible and, and that will add value to their portfolios and ultimately to, to, to add value to their lifestyle. Yeah, it's, uh, you're responsible for their retirement savings and has a, have a great influence on, on the, their ability to retire comfortably. It's uh, actually a, a big responsibility. But over the years, how has your investment approach changed because we've seen markets have changed significantly does uh, investment strategies adapt to such changing markets i think your strategy is likely to change but i think it is very important when you work for a particular company and for yourself you've you've got to work it out for yourself what is your investment philosophy that you think will deliver a competitive outcome for clients and that philosophy i don't think that philosophy should change and in South Africa, and in fact globally, there are many ways that you can you can outperform. I don't think that one single philosophy is necessarily the holy grail for, for outperformance, but I think if you chop and change between philosophies, that is a recipe for disaster. We've seen it with different asset managers when Asset management companies, when they when they change their style, when they change the personnel, it normally doesn't work. So the investment philosophy that I associate with is more value biased. I think the, the biggest margin of safety that you get is in valuation. And the reason for that is, you know, at least that is the one thing that you can hang your hat on. I don't think that uh, one can forecast accurately because there are so many macro variables and micro variables that, that have an impact and you can't forecast that accurately. If you think you can, I think you're very naive. So the one thing that, that is constant is valuation. But the other thing, and it's also, I think, very prominent for me over the last 10 years or so, is that you cannot ignore the quality of the asset that you potentially invest in. The big risk, if you are more price conscious like what I am, the big risk is that you can buy value traps. So the amount of work that you've got to do is enormous if you decide to associate with a value approach. And sometimes you do make mistakes. But the one thing that I, that I can say is if you buy an expensive share and the story associated with that expensive share is a very good one, the risk is that the story can change. And then you have that enormous double whammy where 
the rating comes under pressure and the earnings comes under pressure and then you get massive underperformance. But, you know, it's not easy to, to, to pick those. I think if, if I think about the mistakes that we have made at Salon Private Wealth here and there, the, the one is Capitech. It's a share that we held. It is an extremely well-run company. And at some point, this share just became too expensive uh, to us and we sold it. And today, I mean, we would have been the proud owners should we have hung on to, the, to that particular share. And there are other examples as well. But then we also know, you know, you, you could have made the case for Investec. You could have made the case for Bitvest. You could have made the case for Imperial when they were in the initial growth phases. So uh, it doesn't always hold true. And when it becomes expensive, the risk is that there's a footfall from management and, and the share price goes in the wrong direction. Value investment, I think it, there's a big debate between momentum and uh, value investment. And as you've said, it's performed actually quite poorly over the last decade or so. And yes, there are many value traps. Obviously, you learn from, from this. Good companies that are cheap are not always companies that will offer great returns. How do you approach yes. it? Right again, I think it comes back to it comes back to the comment that I've made earlier. You know, sometimes a share is cheap for a good reason, and then you've got to do the work to ensure that uh, you don't buy that that value trap. And, and and maybe the one thing to mention is that we're not necessarily deep value investors. The first thing that that we try to ascertain when when or establish when we look at a potential investment is to say, do we think that this company has the ability to grow its intrinsic value. If we don't think the company has that ability, then we'll move on. So what does it mean when a company grows its intrinsic value? It simply means that the return that the company will generate on the capital that it employs is higher than the cost of capital. And sometimes, you know, companies simply destroy value where they don't make the returns on capital relative to to the costs. So that is the work that we've got to do. But sometimes I think... What happens is what, what gives us opportunities as more value-orientated investors is that the market or the herd gets absolutely enthralled by the story associated with the asset, and then they extrapolate the current trend as if it's going to run until, until perpetuity, and we know that is not the case, and there's, that is where the, where the risks sit. So we like to think that we can find opportunities where the market is unnecessarily negative about the current events, but that we believe that over time that company can indeed grow its intrinsic value and then buy that asset. One trend we've also seen over the past few years is a decline in the number of listed entities on the JSE. Yeah. And the local asset management industry continues to grow. Is the investment universe large enough for you to follow such an approach? Because quite frankly, you can pick from around 80 companies at best. Right. Unfortunately, what has happened under the political regime over the last 10 years, you know, we've often spoke about the last decade when we when we speak about the economic trends that we've experienced over the last 10 years. And if that is the case, you know, and ultimately it will have an impact on the number of opportunities on in the listed market because if the economy is not growing, it is very tough for the average company to make money. And it's very tough then for a company to grow its earnings and and therefore, we've just seen that the opportunities in the listed space, as you correctly say, those opportunities have declined. So I think the point to make is that for the really big asset managers, for the really big asset managers, it has become a problem. Because if you're, the total number of assets under management becomes too big, it becomes problematic to, to go and look in areas 
where there's no not enough liquidity to express yourself in in a big investment portfolio. So that is certainly problematic. But having said that, I think if you look at in the retail space, in other words, private clients, a lot of money has migrated offshore. And even if you look at the institutional space, most of the institutional portfolios, they and, and if they have to comply to Regulation 28, they will have their full 30% offshore. But nevertheless, I think your, your point is very valid. You've got to look harder because I think it's a it's almost an over-invested space. But still, people in, in a small space, people can get it wrong, and that still creates opportunities, but to a more limited extent compared to, let's say, 20 years ago. I think that is one of the reasons why there was so much excitement when Treasury announced that uh, inward-listed foreign instruments could be regarded as local investments. Many advisors and fund managers were very, very excited. And then the proposal was retracted. What did you make of this development? Rick, it's a it's a very difficult one. I just think at the, at the moment, the sentiment in South Africa is so negative. So should we proceed and allow people to invest more money offshore? And given the very limited interest from overseas investors in South Africa, I think it would would put a lot of pressure on on listed entities in South Africa. And if you look at where where our own market is trading at the moment from a price earnings multiple perspective, if you exclude NASPERS, which on a P basis looks uh, pretty full, but if you exclude that, you know, a market is trading on a 14 multiple and on a forward multiple of less than 10%. So I think if you open the gates now, for me, the timing would not be opportune and you would put further pressure on on listed entities in in South Africa. So for me, you know, I know people have very strong views about it, but I think one needs to be quite responsible in terms of the timing that you apply for uh, for that particular measure that you just mentioned. Well, interestingly, the the market is currently in a in a type of Christmas rally. We've seen a very very strong past two months and I think the Asset managers like yourself should be, uh, you know, going to go on holiday with uh, a much better mindset than a few months ago. What do you think is driving the markets now? Yeah, the word think is uh, the important one, right? Because I often listen to your program on a, on a daily basis. And sometimes people mention reasons why they think assets go up and down. And then I think, well, I, I didn't think that. But nevertheless, so you must, you must understand that is my opinion. But quite often, you know, uh, people say, okay, we, we know that there's value. And then the, the popular question from clients and, and retail investors is, you know, what do you think the catalyst will be? What will unlock the value? And my answer is always, I don't know. I just know that they, there's always a catalyst. And in this case, to my mind, the catalyst was when we had the, the first announcements of AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. And as you know, you know we've already seen the rollout in limited, in, in limited quantities in, in the US and in the UK. What it means is that what we've seen with COVID, the economic mobility in the world has gone down, and with that, of course, economic activity and therefore pressure on earnings. If the vaccine means that people can economically move around more freely, then economic activity should accelerate. We should be more certain about the balance sheets of some of those companies that were unloved, and we should be a bit more certain about a potential recovery in earnings in those in those companies. And that would apply for value shares globally and it would also apply for value shares in South Africa. And it would certainly also apply for people who are prepared to take more risk when they reckon there's more certainty. So I think what the vaccine did it changed the sentiment from a very uncertain one to one where 
the investors are starting to give the benefit of the doubt to those companies where they think that they will firstly survive and secondly where from a low base admittedly we can start to expect recovery in earnings and that is why massive swing around in let's say in banks for instance over the last two months the bank index the listed bank index south africa has gone down by 15 50 percent five zero and if you look at gold shares in south africa since uh, the beginning of august Till yesterday, the average gold share in South Africa, the price has gone down by 50%. And, you know, that is just, just tells you how immense the change in sentiment is. But it also tells you how extremely negative the market was in some of these value situations. So, yes, I certainly sleep a bit more comfortably. But, you know, the sentiment is very fragile and that can change very quickly again. Yes. But at least I think the market was a bit more rational. But if you compare it to the sentiment at the beginning of the year where COVID wasn't really perceived as going to have the impact it had, we've seen the impact COVID has had on the world economy since then. And the world is actually in a worse place than it was at the beginning of the year. But equity markets have just uh, exploded in, in recent times. Is that a overreaction? Yeah, I think right, it is true that it might be perceived as an overreaction. But again, when we talk about markets, we talk about the average in indices. And indices are always dictated by a few heavyweights. So in the case, let's say, of the U.S. market, the so-called FANGs, so that is Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix, those four or five shares, Microsoft, they constitute about 25% of the S&P 500, which is the index constituted by 500 shares. So those shares have become quite expensive. So information technology shares globally, if you look at NASDAQ, NASDAQ is up 37% year to date. If you look at our own market, our own market's only up by 4% year to date. If you look at the S&P 500, despite the strong performance of those uh, FANG shares, the S&P 500 in double-digit territory. So remember that you measure off a very low base. So that so that is that is the first thing. So within the market, I think there are still really really cheap shares, and a lot of the the action that we've seen over the last two months was actually produced by shares that were very unloved and ignored by the market. In the last two weeks or so, we've seen another run in the in the IT shares, and and, and where I see irrationality is still in the IT space. So we've seen recently a number of new listings coming to the market uh, globally, not in our own market, as you mentioned earlier. And to my mind, uh, the valuations of those what we call IPOs, those valuations, they look absolutely ridiculous and irrational. So they are certainly signs of things that we've experienced back in 99, 2000, when we had the IT bubble. But unlike the IT bubble, I think the top, let's say the top five shares they are expensive, but they're not in bubble territory. And unlike in 99, you must understand that those companies, they've got very strong balance sheets, they've got superb earnings growth, and they, they've got millions, if not billions of clients uh, that use their products. So I think it is a bit different, but there are clearly some, some signs of froth that I certainly don't like. Then I just want to come back to your comment about the economy being in more trouble. I think one must be... As a result of the massive uh, stimulus response from from economic authorities across the world, uh, one thing is very clear to me. The positive is it revived the patient. The patient was in ICU. The patient got revived and, and momentum is picking up. You can see it in South Africa. You can see it in phenomenal momentum in current growth numbers across the world. 
And I think the liquidity that was created will still be around and that would provide support for risky assets. So that is the one thing. The second thing is we will also see in the new year, we will see a recovery in earnings globally in equity prices and that should provide some support. And then thirdly, we spoke about the vaccine. I think that should just be good for sentiment. So in the shorter term, I think there there are enough factors that can support the market. But for me, the biggest risk is slightly longer term because the one side effect of the massive stimulus is that the world sit with a, a massive amount of debt. And at some point, that problem will come home to roost. And if you sit with debt, and most of the debt sit on government levels rather than with uh, individuals, you need to, what we say in economic terms, we need to deleverage. In other words, you, you've got to bring your debt down. And in order to bring that debt down, you can take yourself as an individual. If, if I have to reduce the debt in my own financial affairs, I can only do one thing. If I don't get a massive income, I've got to stop spending. And that brings hardship. So for me, this debt at some point needs to be addressed and that will lead to low economic growth. And and that might also lead into some assets that are irresponsibly high at these prices that that can collapse. But I I don't want to sound like a doom profit, but I think in the shorter term, one must be careful not to be too negative because there are certainly some momentum factors that are likely to support these, these assets. Alvin, thanks so much for your time today. That was Alvin van der Merwe. He is the Director of Investments at Sunlum Private Wealth.